Welcome to the Back Nine Report, presented by eDraft.com. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Back Nine Report, presented by eDraft.com. We go live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and check in on the world of golf to bring you the latest news, insights, analysis, interviews, recaps, previews. Hey, we cover anything and everything off. My name is Carlos Torres. Every week, I'm alongside my co-host Fred Alvader, but this week, he is in Orlando in the PGA Tour, a golf merchandise show, as he's usually every year. So I had to bring in some reinforcements, and who's better than our friend and colleague, the European golf guru, Kieran Clark. So I'm going to welcome him first. Kieran, hi. How are you this week? How are you? I'm very well, Carlos. Thanks for having me on, as always, trying to fill up the the void left by Fred. Though, of course, he's still here, so we have a a double team tonight with you tonight. So it should be a a good one. Obviously, a massive week in golf in so many ways. Obviously, Fred's at the PGA show, so it's a great week for the golf industry, a massive week of promotion and new releases and all the great gadgets and technology coming out. So people are kind of swamped by that information this week, but also it's a major week for the golf industry. And then, of course, on the tour side of things, a certain Mr. Tiger Woods is back in action this week at one of his favorite venues in California. California at Torrey Pines, so it's a massive week, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Excellent, excellent. It's always great to have you here. And Fred, hi, how are you? I mean, I don't know why I ask how are you. I mean, you're just like a kid <laughs> with all those new toys and all that thing. I mean, we're all just envious of where you are right now. Well, it's just like being in Disney World, you know, for golfers. Uh, we're right here, uh, right at the gate to get Disney World, but uh, it's just, uh, it's fabulous. Hey, guys, uh, I want to open the show tonight with some big news. Um, you know, we've been talking about for a while that maybe Tiger was interested in buying TaylorMade. Today at uh, 5.08 p.m. Eastern Time, Tiger tweeted, big decision made, find out tomorrow, TW. Um, then I picked up from another source, that the announcement is going to be made in the morning that Tiger has indeed bought TaylorMade. As you know, he's been playing the equipment. He played it at the Hero World Challenge in December, um, and it kind of makes sense that Tiger's starting to transition over maybe for life after golf. Uh, he has his foundation, and if he has TaylorMade, that might give him a nice little uh, business to run uh, when he can't play golf anymore. So. If it's not too late, you may want to run out and buy some stock because I'm sure they'll sell a few clubs if Tiger's going to play them. <laughs> hmm, hmm, I don't know. But, hey, we said it a long time ago. I mean, the, the rumors have, have been there, uh, and he was just, uh, I don't know if it was joking on it, but if, if it is true, it all makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I see it like he's already starting his uh, second career after golf. You never know when... Uh, his back is going to give up, give up again, or maybe his gluteus will will give up again, like it did at Torrey Pines last week, last time. So I, I don't know what's going to be what's going to be next. But one thing is for certain, he has to start thinking about something beyond uh, right now playing golf. And just like Arnold and Jack have done, and Greg Norman have done, 
Kieran, I think this is a great move for him, uh, and it, it makes all the sense of the world, especially with Taylor made a brand of great clubs and that already has some of the top players uh, inked there. So what's, what's your take on it, Kieran? Yeah, obviously, when I heard this earlier, that was kind of my assumption that's what was going to happen, given we've been talking about it for a few months now as a real possibility. But then again, I saw a tweet earlier on from uh, Mike Johnson of uh, Golf Digest, who's the equipment editor of that magazine. He commented earlier on on Twitter that, for, as far as he was concerned, the best bet on this big decision by Tiger was, was actually he was going to sign with TaylorMade rather than buy them over. Uh, apparently, in, his, in Mike Johnson's mind, it makes no sense for Tiger to buy tailor-made at this moment. But that said, I think Fred possibly could be right. Tiger will probably be the front of some kind of consortium of investors coming together and maybe buying the company. But I certainly think Tiger will make some sort of equipment announcement tomorrow, whether it's officially joining tailor-made as a player or, of course, buying the brand as a front of some consortium. So, big news for Tiger. And, um, again, it's amazing how a tweet from Tiger can somehow send us on to a frenzy. This shows that the power this guy still has over us. He's like the... And I'm not sure Tiger would necessarily appreciate this comparison, but he's a little bit like the Donald Trump of golf in that anything he says, <laughs> it, it makes us go wild. <laughs> hey, hey he's the president, that's the president of the United States, okay? Against all odds. I'll take that any time. <laughs> anyway, we'll see. Hey, let's start now with the weekend backspin. And I'm going to start talking about the PGA Tour and the Career Builder Challenge where Hudson Swafford, he fired a closing round of 67 over the stadium course at La Quinta to emerge from a bunch pack and claim his first PGA Tour title at the Career Builder Challenge. Swafford was five shots back of the lead held by Chad Campbell after five holes of the final round. But then he birdied three holes on the spin from seventh to the ninth to join the leaders. Bob Colley then moved ahead at the start of the back nine, but Swafford came back with a birdie at the 15 and climbed back into a share at the top of the board. The 29-year-old then played two fine shots to the par 5 16th before two-putting for another birdie and the outright lead. The former Georgia player followed up with a brilliant shot to the par 3 17th known as Alcatraz. A daunting prospect with its rock line, island green, Swafford took that aim and put his ball to within two feet of the cup. He knocked it in and moved too clear ahead. Adam Hatwin reduced the deficit to one with a birdie on the 16th, but the Canadian, who had shot a 59 in the third round, was unable to get on terms with Swafford. Swafford made a solid par at the last, and Hatwin needed to birdie to the the hole, basically, to tie him. His approach missed to the green, and when he was unable to hold his pitch, the title was Swafford's. This was the first PGA Tour title for Swafford, who is playing in his fourth season on the PGA Tour, and his best finish prior to this week had been a tie for eighth. He earned $1,044,000 and will now be playing in the Masters for the first time. He also jumped from number 204 in the official World Golf Rankings to 89th. Hadwin was unable to secure victory despite shooting an incredible 59 on Saturday. What's going on? I mean, low scores again. This is like a 59 watch every week. The Canadian made no fewer than 13 birdies in round three. He finished the week with a 70 to claim second place on his own. Colley and Brian Harmon finished two back in a share of third, and Dominic Bocelli finishing solo fifth. 
Other notable finishes, Patrick Reed and Francesco Molinari were T12, uh, Bill Haas T17, and Phil Mickelson, who was making a return to competitive competitive action this week after the hernia surgery. He started the event strongly with rounds of 68 and 66, but his progress slowed on the weekend. Maybe he got tired with rounds of 70 and 73. He ended the week in a tie for 21st. He said, and I quote, I'm much further along than I thought I would be. I knew my game wasn't sharp. I didn't feel like I was ready to win, but now I feel like my game's come a long way in the last week. You know, lefty scheduled to play the next four weeks straight, so he better be in shape. Keegan Bradley, Jason Duffner, and Andy Ryan Lahiri and Kieran wishes. Uh, and my pick for Rookie of the Year, John Ram finished T34, uh, Paul Casey T58, while Zach Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau Kieran were among those who missed the cut. Yes, and uh, I'm taking us now across the pond, back across to uh, the Middle East, where we had the Abu Dhabi Championship on the European Tour, really kind of the bigger, really kind of the official opening of the European Tour season. Also had a really good event down in South Africa last week, which was Graham Storm beat Rory. But then the Middle East swing for the European Tour is really the big money spinner at the start of the year. It really kicks the year off in style. And Abu Dhabi was obviously, as always, a highlight of the early part of the season, and it certainly lived up to that expectation. Uh, but it was Tommy Fleetwood, perhaps a somewhat surprising winner, uh, who took the title in the end ahead of a very strong field, which included Dustin Johnson and players like Henrik Stenson and so on, major champions from last year, Danny Willett as well. Uh, and it was Tommy Willett's second win on the European Tour, coming three and a half years after his first, which came at the Johnny Walker Championship at Glen Eagles, which, of course, hosted the Ryder Cup a year later. Uh, it hasn't always been the, the smoothest of times for Tommy, who had a, a bit of a lean spell for about a year after the 2015 Scottish Open Championship, and he's kind of drifted a little bit. But in recent times, his form has picked up, and now getting this win perhaps signals as kind of a second part of his career as he's now just turned 26 years old. And he came back in 31 on the back nine on, on Sunday to finish one shot ahead of Dustin Johnson, the U.S. Open champion, and Pablo Larafavo. And uh, a chip and eagle on the 10th was really the catalyst for him, pushing him up into contention. And he had three further birdies in the back nine after that point, and uh, that clinched the victory for him, the biggest win of his career. And, uh, but he has shown some form recently. hasn't had a lot of top 10s, only one uh, in the past 14 months, but he's had a lot of top 20 finishes. Uh, ten of his, um, he's had 10 top 20 finishes in his last 14 events before the Abu Dhabi Championship, and 41 of his last 42 rounds have been at par or better. So he's been coming into some kind of form quietly. Uh, he's made a few changes in his game. He's got a new caddy. He's one of his best friends. That change was, a little, was kind of scrutinized by people, but it's also turned out to be a very smart move. So he's happier in the golf course, and he's back to playing very well because he has a really good golf swing. He's a great ball striker, and he's one of those guys who you know, has the potential to be up there with the Chris Woods, the Andy Sullivans, you know, Matt Fitzpatrick. It's being one of those great young English players coming through. And he kind of fell away from that. Uh, the last couple of years, but hopefully this is the sign that he's going to get back into that bracket of uh, those top English players. And uh, but Dustin Johnson obviously coming with his first start of the year and uh, or since uh, in, in, over, over in the European Tour, and he eagled the 18th to finish in second place. So that was a a good week for him over uh, over over in the Middle East and um, and a three-time major three-time winner of this event, actually two-time major champion Martin Keimer. He was right in contention. We feel he should have won this event, but he dropped some shots around the turn, and that really prevented him from actually winning the fourth, for a fourth time in Abu Dhabi. And he was two shots back in the end. And Henry Stenson, of course, the Open champion, one of the other major champions in the field this week. And Lee Westwood, they finished in a tie for eighth, alongside the former Ryder Cup player Peter Hansen. 
and uh, elsewhere. And perhaps going back to those English players who have been doing so well, particularly last year, it wasn't a great week for them. You know, Andy Sullivan finished bottom of the guys who made the cut and plus three. Uh, Matt Fitzpatrick missed the cut. And Danny Willett finished nearly bottom of the field, uh, which was a real shock for him. And he's had a terrible run of form, really, in the second half of last year. Remember, obviously, winning the Masters, that incredible triumph and the, a real breakthrough moment for him. But then, really, since then, it hasn't gone to plan. Uh, the Ryder Cup was obviously a disaster on a number of levels for him personally and obviously on the course. And uh, his form hasn't quite come back yet for this year. So he's heading towards his Masters, def- Masters defence now, only if really a couple of months from now at Augusta, and uh, he's not showing much form going into that. So it's a, a big change in Danny Willett's life, obviously winning the Masters, becoming a father around the same time, and he hasn't seemed to have made that adjustment quite as of yet, but he's certainly still a very capable player. But Carlos, you know, Tommy Fleetwood, a guy who we've kind of forgotten about a little bit in the past couple of years, but um, he's certainly capable, and getting a big win like this is a real feather in his cap, and I wouldn't be surprised if he gets another one by the end of this year. Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, I remember uh, he had dropped, I think it was to uh, all the way to 188 after he had climbed already to the world's top 50 for the first time, and then he tried to change his swing, and he had to yep. to go back to his old coach, Alan Thompson, who was first with him as a 13-year-old. He also employed his old caddy and finished. And uh, now look at it. He's all the way uh, back, and like you said, we – appear like we have forgotten about him and hey he's saying i'm back and, and back in a big way because that was a very good uh feel that he did there so that's a name to be really looking forward this year during the european absolutely Tour. hey let's talk a little bit about uh the not so young guys but they're not old they're in the champions tour and you know hawaii is a uh, Paradise, you know, they call them a paradise there. Uh, I would disagree. I would say Puerto Rico is a paradise. That, that, who says? Who, who, who am I to say that? I'm from Puerto Rico. But anyway, heavy winds blew away the VOD there, producing one of the most beautiful days of the young year along the North Kona coast on Saturday. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the sustained 15 to 25 miles per hour wind, which gusted up to 45 miles per hour at some point in the afternoon, also blew away the golfers at the Mitsubishi Electric Championship at Hualai, canceling the final round and making the tournament a 36-hole affair. With the shortened event, second-round leader and reigning PGA Tour Champions Player of the Year, who else? Bernard Langer. He took home his third Macau Trophy, hoisting it on the 18th green a little earlier in the day than anticipated. The Hall of Fame German also won on the Big Island in 2009 and 2014. He, was, he simply dominated at Hualalai, never having shot over par in 29 rounds. That includes 2015 when he shot quintuple bogey on a par 5. Still, he didn't win over par. So you should know how much he has dominated there. Five golfers finished their rounds, but more than half of the 47 golfers making up the field would have had to finish to force a completion of the final round before play was halted. The scoring average was a whopping, here it is, 79.027, compared to a 69.096 in the combined two rounds prior. Play was suspended at 1.20 p.m., but players were told to hold their positions 
By 1.40 p.m., the golfers had to come in, and about 30 minutes later, the tourney was called after a meeting between various officials. Langer's tournament-winning birdie came in the second round, completing a clutch running back nine that propelled him to the top of the field. He reeled off birdies of four of the five final holes, including a seven-foot putt on number 18 to move to 15 under par for a total of 129, a sole possession of first place. Freddie Couples, who was playing two groups ahead of Langer, bogey 18 to fall to 14 under, eventually cementing him in second place. It was his third second place at Hualalai that also was in 2010 and 2014. Couples <clears throat> and Langer were paired up in the final grouping, but only managed to get on the green uh, at the hole number one before the round was canceled. One of the only players enjoying the breeze in the final round was Paul Goidos. The one-time 59 shooter, talking about 59, huh, was three under through 13 holes. Only three other players were under par at the time play was stopped. Something worth mentioning uh, away from that, despite the shortened workday, the win was still special for a variety of reasons for Langer. Most of those resolved around the number three. I'm going to tell you why. It was the third win at the event and the 30th overall on the PGA Tour Champions uh, moving him into second place on the career list behind Hale Erwin, who has 45 wins on the senior circuit. It also came on the 33rd anniversary to his wife, uh, Vicky, to play off three teams just a little bit more. Langer hit only three shots on the first hole before the round was eventually called off. He also gets to take back with him a healthy $300,000 winning check, giving him the early lead in the Charles Schwab Cup race, which... Of course, he's going to win, but anyway, <laughs> they just should give it to him. As for the windy conditions, you know, there were stories uh, where guys were four-putting from five feet. For five feet, four-putting. Can you imagine that? Or they would put, they would make the putt to the hole and the ball would come back towards their feet. Kieran, I think that given the circumstances and that the forecast was as bad or worse for the next day that we acted well, in shortening the tournament, not that it would probably change the outcome of the dominator winning against you. Well, to be honest, Carlos, it sounds like it's an average day here in St. Andrews. So I don't think it's that bad. It's not as good as they really yeah. wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Also, they're just trying to keep the old guys <laughs> nice and dry and, and nice and warm inside. Yeah, that's fair enough because they're getting in advancing years. But uh, every single year, we seem to ask the question, can Bernard Langer still dominate? Can he still be the man to beat on the Champions Tour as he approaches 60? Well, we already have our answer. The answer to that is a firm yes. And uh, he's a remarkable player, still plays to an incredible standard, and uh, you know, a few, you know, there's been few more professional players in the game than him. He handles himself so well in every aspect, and uh, he's certainly someone to admire. And uh, he'll continue to be a, a top force for, I think, quite a few years to come. Really, probably as long as he wants to be, he'll still be out there winning events. Uh, over on the Asian Tour, there was actually another senior player claiming a title. Uh, a little bit younger one, but very impressive victory nonetheless. And that was Priyad Marksang, who's been around for many years now playing the Asian Tour and periodically on the European Tour as well. And he shot a fan on a 67 to win his 10th Asian Tour event at the Singapore Open. And that was just a week before he turns 51, so it came at an you know, unexpected time of his career, I guess you could say. And that's also actually earned him a spot in this summer's Open Championship at Royal Birkdale. So an added bonus right there. Markson's played in a number of Open Champions down the years, and it's still been another one for him too. Uh, but of course, the real name people were looking for in this event was actually Adam Scott, the former Masters champion, world number one, who had been one shot ahead of the field after 54 holes of the event. 
but he had a rather miserable final day, uh, looking for his fourth victory in this tournament. But the Australian struggled uh, during that last day, with a double bogey in the 15th hole effectively ending his chances of victory. Adam Scott's now plotting his schedule ahead of the Masters. He's not playing very much over the next month, but he's going to uh, racket up his schedule going into the the spring into towards Augusta. Well, he's obviously planning his schedule around that particular championship. But prior Mark Sang at the age of 51 almost, you know, he's shown you that the age again is just a number and the quality is still there. And he took his, he took his opportunity to get a win there and obviously a big win for him. Uh, so Carlos, you know, usually in the game at the moment we're talking about young guys winning events, you know, Justin Thomas, all those kind of guys who have had great success. But this week, Carlos, we're talking about the older guys. So it's a refreshing change. It is, isn't it? It's been... I think like two years ago, it was 2015 when it was the, the youngsters, and everybody thought, hell, that, that was it. It's going to be the youngsters. But last year, you know, 70% of the tournaments were one over 30 years old, and it's like, mm. you know, it's balancing out. And I'm not like in the, the ladies where really that's where you have to be 20 or under to be in the top. <laughs> yeah. It's refreshing to see that the old guys can still play. Hey, Fred. Before we go to the course report that you're going to be making from the PGA Golf Merchandise Show, is there anything you would like to add to the weekend backspin? Oh, no, just, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, I, I think uh, Danny Willett has just, you know, kind of fallen off the face of the earth here a little bit with his game. I, I hope he kind of gets it back together a little bit. Uh, Freddie, it was really great to see Fred Couples play a little bit in Hawaii. I watched a little bit of that last weekend. Uh, he looked like he's hitting the ball really well. Even when he wasn't, it was still going away and learned it. So um, that would be great if he could play with his back left. He, he probably played it all last year. Longer win again, phenomenal, phenomenal. And, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, it was a pretty good weekend of golf. Things are starting to get ramped up, and uh, let's talk about this week. Let's talk about it. And now we have closed the weekend back thing, and now we're going to have a new section. It's called the Course Report. We have an on-course reporter, and that's Fred. He is where we would like to say, you know that when uh, the big teams in all the sports, they say you win the big championship, they ask him, where are you going? I'm going to Disney. You know what they ask Fred? He says, I'm going to the big Harry Golf Merchandise Show. Exactly. That's what he exactly. says. That's where he is. That's where he is right now, and he's going to tell us everything that's going on there, Fred. I got to tell you, it really was a lot of fun today. Uh, I, 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 the demo day, I usually, I'm not, I usually don't get that excited about it, but it was a really nice day. It was a little breezy, but it was really beautiful here today. Walked around the whole thing, checked everything out, and guys, I'm getting to see a lot of people that you don't get to see all that much, and, and so it was really fun. But, you know, the PGA Merchandise Show kicks off this week here in Orlando. Uh, it's the largest gathering of golf business professionals. Um, and every display of every kind of golf-related product and equipment in the world. Over 40,000 industry professionals and 1,000 media attendants. Uh, vendors are of golf apparel, trophies, awards, bags, balls, carts, food, gifts, equipment, services, technology, training aids, and travel. It's, it's unbelievable. Golf destinations such as Scotland, Ireland, China, the Dominican Republic showcase their country's best golf assets and ask golfers to visit. And well, there's a few golf balls while they're there. The 1,000 editorial media professionals that are here represent 25 countries, uh, sending back report, reports to various outlets. USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Business Week, 
the New York Times, Fox News, Chicago, NBC Sports and Sports Illustrated, everybody's here. Sirius XM Radio does about 15 hours of live coverage. Um, you got the PGA Tour Radio Network doing about 35 hours right from the convention floor. You got Golf Channel has a stage set up down there. Uh, it's just it's an amazing thing. And of course, NWO Golf Links Back Nine Report and, and Back Nine Radio Show. We're all right here. We're right here with the big boys this week, uh, uh, bringing it all live and, and in color to everybody. You know, I, I spent the day walking around the driving range at uh, Orange County uh, National Golf Center for the world's largest outdoor demonstration day today, and it's open exclusively to PGA professionals and buyer retailers and, and media. But there was a uh, hundred exhibitors with 200 hitting bays, uh, practice greens, uh, just anything you can think about, any kind of uh, uh, training aid or anything that you can think of was there. Um, and Carlos, I even used it. You know, this is really the true version of like Disney World for golfaholics. Uh, uh, being out there today and seeing all this stuff, you can you can see it, feel it, touch it. You can hit a few balls. Uh, the the new F driver from Callaway was they were working with that. Uh, TaylorMade had their new M products out there. Uh, just every everything was there. But the coolest thing I got to tell you guys, the coolest thing I saw today. Uh, I put a picture on Facebook, actually. It's called the Best of Bikes. It's a company of, out of the Netherlands that's making like kind of like a low-slung bicycle, uh, two wheels, and uh, but they're big, fat, low-profile, low big, fat wheels, like cart tires, only wider, and it's electric, battery-powered. You can throw your golf bag on the back. And use it so you ride around like a low rider, like a Harley Davidson or something, around the golf course with it uh, for your cart. It, it's very cool. It's the best of bikes, and it's a Netherlands company, so it's bestofbikes.nl if you want to look it up. But uh, I really, I really love that thing. I like it better than the skateboards or the, or the golf skate caddies because uh, you can sit down and, and drive it uh, like a like a bike or something. So. But, guys, uh, tomorrow through Friday, the show moves inside into the Orange County Convention Center. There's 10 miles of aisles. Uh, thousands of golf vendors display every golf product known to modern man. Uh, and I just have to tell everybody, if you're a golf fan, uh, fanatic, if you ever get the chance to come to the PGA Merchandise Show, it's, it, it's really a lot of fun. You, you just cannot believe it's like sensory overload. Uh, when you're out there. So we're going to get some interviews tomorrow and that we're going to be able to play um, uh, in, four, in upcoming weeks on the show, uh, talking about different products and, and uh, bring, them, uh, bring them all to our listeners. Carlos. There you have it. That was the course report from Fred Altvader there on the PGA Tour Golf Merchandise Report. And like he said, we're going to have all those uh, interviews that he's going to be gathering during the, the course of the next few weeks. So you don't want to miss them. We're going to take our first short break. And when we come back, we have the Par 5 News. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back. In the meantime, don't forget to visit www.edraft.com for analysis, breaking news, and more. Also, remember to follow us on Twitter at edraftsports and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash edraftsports. 
Now, back to the show. And we're back, and now it's time for the 5-5 News. (laughs) It's time for the 5-5 News, and Kieran, you are going to kick it off. You're going to tee it off. Talking about the European Tour changing its membership requirements and also the Ryder Cup qualifying. So uh, what it's all about? Uh, Yes, Carlos, thanks for bringing back in there. We're, we're slightly concerned there because you kind of, uh, we were sitting in silence for a moment there, but a dead <laughs> air going on, but thankfully you came back just in time to rescue me and Fred from having to fumble around the show for 10 minutes, which would never have ended very well. well. I, we could do ourselves. When I, talk, you here. In, when I talk, he sometimes takes a nap, I, you know, I, I think is what happens there. <laughs> well, 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 sir, that's what I was doing when you were talking a minute ago. <laughs> That's why I was silent, but I'm I'm back and fully lucid and awake now. But yes, as you say, Carl, it's obviously changes made to the European Tour membership policy and also the Ryder Cup qualification criteria. And this has been kind of an issue for a number of years now. It's sort of bumbled along where you know, players have to be members of the European Tour to play on the Ryder Cup team. But obviously now with so many of the top leading players from Europe playing essentially full-time in the U.S. on the PGA Tour with all the big money and all the big events and so on, and they enjoy the weather and the great lifestyle and all the majors are over there, so they base themselves over there. It's led to a case where the, the European Tour has tried to self-preserve itself by almost blackmailing players to come back and play events over here to, be, to get into the Ryder Cup team, and that's still the case. But what's happened over the years is that you could argue, and certainly this time, I don't think anybody could say that the European team at Hazeltine was the best 12 players that they have. And I think you could probably say the same about the 2014 team at Glen Eagles, even though they won that one. The team was probably on paper not as good as it could have been. So these changes should, in theory, improve the team going into next year and at the Golf National in France. So in summary, uh, the membership criteria on the European Tour is to be dropped from five tournaments to four tournaments outside the majors and WGCs for the 2018 season. So players to have a membership and maintain that membership to have to play in four non-major and WGC events on the European Tour. So four regular tour events. That should be an easier thing to achieve. But more importantly, to do the qualification for the 2018 Ryder Cup team, and Ryder Cup qualification points, uh, both on the European points list and the world points, are to be multiplied by 1.5 for tournaments later in the process. And this will start at the BMW PGA Championship next year. So players in the last four months leading up to the Ryder Cup, uh, emphasis will be placed on those tournaments. So in theory, the guys who are in form will have a, have a, have a benefit going towards the Ryder Cup team. Because really could argue that uh, this year, someone like Andy Sullivan, who won three events in 2015, uh, and that pretty much guaranteed his place on the European Tour, uh, so in the Ryder Cup team. He didn't play particularly well comparatively last year. So he went to the Ryder Cup team certainly not as one of the 12 best players. And two years before that, Thomas Bjorn, who, of course, ironically is now the captain of the European team, he wasn't in great form going into the Ryder Cup team in 2014 as he had actually essentially qualified the year before. So this change should make players who are playing well have a, a better chance of qualifying for the team towards the end of the process. And no Ryder Cup qualification points will also be available from tournaments staged anywhere in the world opposite Rolex Series tournaments in both 2017 and 2018. The Rolex Series has also been a big thing for the European Tour, these huge events throughout the year uh, with big money, kind of showpiece events on the European Tour. 
and this is their way of trying to ensure that players will play in those ones. So obviously now there's big money in them, but now there's rider cut points. So there's now two reasons for the top players to come over here and play in events like Wentworth, like the Scottish Open, the Irish Open, and so on, and of course the Dubai Desert, uh, race to Dubai finale, and so on. So that makes perfect sense in many ways as well. And also, uh, it's changed now. The, the actual the makeup of the team has to change from 12 players were made up now of four players from the European Ryder Cup points list, four from the World points list, which is taken from the World Rankings, and four wild card picks for Captain Bjorn. So it's another way of him ensuring that the informed players are going to be on the team. He can try and be more imaginative and more uh, with his with his picks. There's more flexibility with his picks. Um, so that was uh, these changes are twofold really. One, they should ensure that the European team has a better chance of having the 12 best players they have on the team going into next year, and also it protects their own events. You know, the Rolex Series events are obviously the thing they're trying to promote very heavily. It will enhance those even further. So I think the European Series made the right decision here. Um, obviously, there's players like Paul Casey who essentially is based full time in America didn't bother even trying to qualify for a Cup team last time, and he's unquestionably one of Europe's best players. We missed out on him. And guys like Martin Laird or Russell Knox, you know, they were disadvantaged uh, by the qualifying process as well. And look at someone like John Ram, who Carlos mentioned earlier as being a potential rookie of the year on the PGA Tour. He's eligible. Of course, he's Spanish, so he could be on the team, has ambitions to be so, and this will make, make it easier for players like him to go onto the team next year. So it makes perfect sense, and... Uh, I think the European Tour has done the right thing here. And Thomas Bjorn commented on it himself, and he said, and I quote, I am delighted that the tournament committee passed these light regulations, which I believe will considerably benefit the European Ryder Cup team in 2018 without compromising the strength or importance of the European Tour. In my role as chairman of the tournament committee for the past 10 years, and now as Ryder Cup captain, I fully appreciate the need to balance both of these essential elements, and I think we have managed to do that. Part of the reason for my appointment last month was to, as soon as possible, begin the process required to regain the Ryder Cup at the Golf National in 2018. And these changes are the first step on that journey. Hopefully, they will help me have the 12 best European players available in 20 months' time. So, Carlos, I think we can officially say this is European Tour's version of the task force. But they haven't <laughs> been stupid enough to call it that. So we'll give them credit for that, too. <laughs> As always, the Americans have to show you how it's done, Karen. <laughs> yeah, true, but you, you know, I think now the Americans are going to copy that uh, about the inform uh, players that counting those tournaments. I, I think it's brilliant because that way, you know, those players yeah. that are just trying to make the team like like it happened to Thomas Peters uh, like this mm-hmm. this last time. He had to really earn it, uh, that pick, he could have made it under the new uh, rules. So, you know, it, yep. it's really a, a great uh, decision. And, and I think that's something that the Americans should adopt. Uh, because, uh, well, the funny thing yeah. is, Carlos, you know, I must quickly say there, you know, Fred mentioned there how obviously the, 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 the Americans last time pretty much copied the European model and the task force by having the continuity and all the vice captains and all this sort of stuff. And now... The European tour is kind of taking from the American side of things now. So it's a little bit like the Cold War here between the U.S. and the Soviet <laughs> Union where they keep borrowing each other's ideas every year. So we'll see how it plays out. We? But I think the, the best decision has been made by both teams. The task force had the right formula for America, and I think this is the right thing for the European team. So that means, in theory, we'll have a, two very strong teams next year, and that's going to be good for the Ryder Cup. So that's the main thing. Definitely. It's a win-win situation. Hey, let's talk a little bit about the LPGA, who's also changing. 
there's changing in the European Tour and there's changing in the LPGA because they're changing the points reset ahead of the CME Group Tour Championship to give more players an opportunity to win the season-long race to the CME Globe and its $1 million prize. In 2017, this year, the points reset will give the top five players heading to the season finale in Naples, Florida, a chance to win the top prize if they win the CME Group Tour Championship. That's an increase from the top three that previously had a chance. In addition, the top 12 players in the point standings heading into the finale will have a mathematical chance of winning the race to the CME Globe. Previously, only the top nine had a chance of winning. This year uh, will mark the fourth for the race to the CME Globe concept, with Lydia Ko winning each of the first two years, 2014 and 2015, while Adia Yutanagar won last year. And although those three additions, the top players have been the only ones who really had the big chance, uh, in theory, to win it all, and that favorite Lydia all three years, and Aria was added to the mix last year with her by making it available for others to have a shot at winning. Anything can happen, just as we have seen in the FedEx Cup where it's not necessarily the top player there going into that tour championship that wins the big check. It brings everybody else to give it their all instead of making it just a coronation formality. And so I, I think that's a good move for, from their part and also bringing in more of that uncertainty going into that last tournament. And since I mentioned Lydia Ko, you know, she may have found her new coach, the same who, coach who helped Adia Yutanagarn, top Ko for Rolex Player of the Year last season. Ko has worked with Gary Gilchrist for several sessions over the last 10 days or so at Mission Inn Resort and Club in Howie in the Hills, Florida. She's preparing to make her first OPGA start of the 2017 next month at the ISPS Handout Women's Australian Open. Ko's team confirmed Tuesday that Ko has been working with Gilchrist but says she isn't prepared to announce a player-coach union just yet. Gilchrist also confirmed her work together, but isn't sure if he's officially her full-time coach. Gilchrist, you know, he has become a hot commodity coaching now in the women's ranks. Uh, he took over as Yutanagar and swing coach early last year before she broke through to win three starts in a row last spring. Yutanagar would go on to an LPGA Best Five titles in 2016, including her first major, the Rico Women's British Open. Yutanagar went from 64th to currently number two in the Rolex World Rankings. Cole made news last month when she parted ways with David Ledbetter, her swing coach for her first three years as an LPGA member. And Gilchrist and Ledbetter, they have a history together. Uh, when he was a young coach, Gilchrist worked under Ledbetter at the David Ledbetter Golf Academy. He also worked with Michelle Wee when she was first emerging as a phenom and also coached Yanni Sang during her reign as the world number one. Kieran, if Gilchrist wins the job with Coe full-time, he'll be coached to three of the top four players in the women's world rankings because he also coaches number four, Sean Sean Fong, and, oh, he also coaches 10-time LPGA winner, Paula Kramer. Yeah, absolutely, and, and he's almost becoming the golf's best coach that most people have probably never heard of, and uh, I think Lydia Cole this year has been one of the, the most fascinating stories going into this year, because she's made a lot of changes to our whole setup, with her equipment, her coach, her caddy, everything, so it's going to be a fascinating thing, because obviously she's had, she's had incredible success 
and things that she, you know a slight dip in form and she's changed everything so it's a a really interesting move and we'll see how she gets on this year that's going to be one of the great plot lines going into the LPGA Tour season uh, but changes may also be required Carlos in, at the, in Japan for the Olympic Games which of course will be in three years time now obviously the re-Olympics were popular a great success went probably as well as anybody could have anticipated two, the two events were fantastic both men and women's sides and the golf course was, was terrific and it was a well attended and it was a really uh, positive event for the game and it will probably ensure the golf will have a future beyond uh, 2020 but for 2020 there's a bit of contention going into that uh, the Guardian's Justin McCurry has reported that the IOC has reportedly expressed concern and has contacted the International Golf Federation over the 2020 venue's mail-only policy and no Sunday play membership policy. So again, it comes back to the, you know, remember what happened to Augusta National when they brought in women for the first time a few years ago. Obviously, now the Open Championship, the RNA eventually brought in women members. We've seen the Muirfield thrown off the Open Championship rota for the time being because they have an all-male membership policy and didn't vote to change it. So again, this issue of equality and bringing and inequality in the game and you know, obviously being more progressive in terms of their policies, that's again coming to play again here. And it makes, again, it's obviously Olympic Games, that should be the most equal thing of all. So it makes sense that they would be concerned about that. Uh, but the club's general manager has told the reporter that they are prepared to review their policies if asked to by the IOC. So obviously now the, the ball is in the IOC's court to go about this. However, a non-profit organization launched last year to modernize the game in Japan, and golf is obviously an incredibly popular sport in Japan, uh, and this organization is calling for the event to actually be moved to another venue. And the Japan Golf Council, which is a non-profit outfit, uh, they were launched last year, and they're aiming of again, modernizing the game within the country and so on. And they're lobbying to have that tournament moved uh, to a public course near Tokyo Bay, and that had actually been an originally considered venue uh, in, beforehand. However, this public golf course is severely landlocked and may not possess the facilities, and it probably isn't a high quality enough of a course design required to host an event of this magnitude hosting the world's best golfers. Uh, so, Carlos, we, we, we obviously we saw a multitude of problems leading up to the Rio Olympic Games of the golf courses they're trying to construct that one in time. It all came together in the end, thankfully. But it looks like we'll see similar controversy and debate and uh, anxiety going into 2020. So that will be something to look out for in the coming years. But um, obviously an early thing for them to try and address. But going back to Olympic Games, obviously it was a great success last August. And in Japan, obviously a, a country which is golf mad comparatively, certainly compared to Brazil, you know that should be a, a one hell of an event when we get there in three years' time. But uh, we'll see what golf course they use. Because actually the golf course, the, this public golf course I've seen the pictures of it and uh, it's on a very strange location kind of landlocked uh, it looks like a very poor it looks like a poor man's uh, firestone which isn't a good thing as far as it isn't that good anyway but this is even worse so all the holes look, look exactly the same as each other so uh, hopefully the, the, this golf course with the, the membership policy is improved and it's changed so we actually have a event played on a very good golf course one thing that made the Olympic Games last year so good Carlos was the, the two events are played on a fantastic golf course designed by Gil Hans. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, when I hear, when I would hear uh, that there is a, a, a golf course or any venue for an Olympics, that they say that's the perfect place to play, I mean, that's the way to go, I will be worried. Really, I have never seen any venue that's not criticized for something. Uh, prior to any Olympics. But, but it makes so, you wonder, uh, Carlos, you know, how, you know, how, how can the IOC continually get these things wrong? It's remarkable. 
It's, but they, they pull it off. They pull it off. It's the Olympics. They just about do it in the end, yes. Yeah, it's just all about money at the end of the day. They, they pull it off and <laughs> they pull it off. So, But hey, anyway, uh, we talked about uh, Adam Hatwin uh, shooting a, a 59 also um, this past weekend. You know, low scoring has become a hot topic recently. And even where hashtag 59 watch is becoming a trending hashtag almost every week on tour. Jeff Shackleford, he reported on his blog that Mark Wicker, Mark Wicker talked to players at the Career Builder Challenge uh, about Justin Thomas' record scoring in Hawaii and what the increase in 59s all means for the game. Many things stood out, so he just uh, clipped out the most intriguing, and I will read. I read it, and I agree. You know, the entire piece is worth your time. So if you want to read it, it's, it's in his. Uh, the link is on his uh, blog. But I'm gonna read to you the the most important quotes that he clipped from there. The first one is from Jason Duffner, and he says, uh, "Larry Nelson won the U.S. Open at Oakmont in 1993." He told me that on the first hold, he'd hit four iron into the green. Last year, I hit a pitching wedge three days, sent west the other day. Uh, William McGirt, you know, he has so many great insights about distance and trackmen. In 1998, uh, John Daly led the tour by average 298 yards. Last year, there were 27 pros who topped 300. This year, Smiley Kaufman leads with an impossible average of 322. Any course with mundane par fives is helpless. The you know, look list is already 50 under par on the long holes this season. And McGarrett said, people will say the golf ball doesn't go any further. But they're wrong. The drivers can't get hotter. The ball is the only common denominator with all the shots. They've basically taken an old two-piece hard break ball, and made it spin. That benefits the bumpers. They can get to the core and compress it better than anyone. I can't do that, but I have a ball I know I can control, end of quote. Oh, boy, he's blaming the ball. Yeah, well, that's what the, <laughs> that's what the Golden Barrels have said. It's the freaking ball that will get you sleeping <laughs> with Luca Brasi and the fishes, you know. But as, uh, as uh, Georgia... Jeff Shackleford discussed last week on Golf Center, along with Sean Feisting, you know, Trackman is now an underrated uh, element in the overall improvement of player skill and distance. And McCurd added to that when he said, and I quote, it detects a flaw before it gets out of control. If your swing is a degree and a half steeper than it should be, you can fix it before it becomes four degrees. You look at it and scratch your head and say, it looks the same, but it's not. Video doesn't pick up everything. Because of these, I don't have my teacher, John Tillery, with me all the time. I can hit 40 shots and email them. And he can pull the numbers and say, here's what the problem is. But some guys get caught up in it. They might start playing numbers instead of playing golf. End of quote. You know, Karen, I understand, like Jeff says, uh, that golf is a sport where the lowest score wins and it's uh, natural to try and improve uh, the equipment to achieve even lower scores. But I, for me, I am with Feinstein when he says that other sports like baseball and tennis have done things uh, to try and undermine the effects of the equipment advances 
in technology because it just gets out of control and then the sport becomes watchable. He mentions Fred Koppel saying, par is good, score once in a while. And I have to agree with that, Karen, because there has to be uh, still there that degree of difficulty and strategy because you can predict the least what gets the people glued on to watch and not the shootouts. Yeah, I, I think there's a balance to be found. But obviously the, the technology in golf has gone through the roof. And again, that impact essentially has improved the professional game immeasurably in terms of distance. You know, It's incredible how far the players hit it now compared to what they did 20 years ago. And that's had a great and negative effect on the game as a whole. You know, The golf courses now on the tour have been stretched out to ridiculous lengths trying to combat this. Many classic designs are now regarded as being obsolete for major championships. And, uh, and it's a shame. You look, look at the look at Augusta National, the amount of property they have bought over the years to try and lengthen that golf course and put trees in and, all, and it added a second cut of rough in. And it hasn't made the golf course any better. It's made it more difficult, perhaps, but it hasn't made it better. It made it worse. And uh, look at the old course at St Andrews, uh, the game's most historic venue. You know, that course now has been lengthened to its maximum, actually to such, to such an extent that two of the tees in the golf course, the 14th and the 17th, are actually out of bounds for the championship, which is, which is ridiculous. And uh, when the, you know, the RNA and the USGA really should have tackled the golf ball years ago, and uh, they're now seeing the impact of this where we're having, you know, it's, it's not so much about lower scores. Lower scores are fine, but the thing is, it's more the how rather than you know, what, what, you know, the how is the issue here where you're seeing guys now who are just driving the ball, drive wedge constantly. And uh, that doesn't give you a full picture of the game, doesn't give a full examination. And uh, you go back in the day, your long irons are now obsolete. Your mid irons are almost virtually never seen either sometimes. So many of these bombers can just drive the ball so far, it becomes almost a pitch and putt contest. And uh, you know, the scoring is incredible. It's exciting to watch guys shoot low scores, but I think the game has lost a little bit of an element to it. It's lost an artistry to it, it's become more scientific. And put it this way, when golf is a spectator sport, when you're watching a golf tournament now, and if you, if you cannot see where the ball, golf ball goes because the guy's hit it so far, that is science rather than a sport. And uh, I think it has an issue for viewing golf, and uh, I think it's made the, the game less interesting to watch and you know, maybe less interesting to play at the top level because these guys have their incredible techniques honed by Trackman, getting clubs perfectly fitted to them. They can hit the golf ball so far now. And uh, it's made for incredible scores, but has it made the game better to watch? I don't think so. Fred, change the freaking ball. That's what they have to do. That's it. You have, yeah, you have I, the rest of the story on a, on a Kirkland, uh, Costco's Kirkland golf ball. But anyway, uh, before you go to that, any comments you want to make on this or any of the other uh, part five news? No, you guys did a great job covering everything, uh, uh, going through everything. But, you know, I, I think, it, you know, track, man, you know, we talked about it last week, the low scoring. Uh, it's a lot of stuff. It's the fitness of the players. It's the equipment. It's the ball. It's using track, man. It's early training when they're young, uh, flexibility. Uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of things involved in it. Plus, it's, uh, you know, now it's a mental. They have the confidence to do it. You know, uh, guys have mental coaches that – so there's a lot of things involved. It's just, uh, but boy, these scores just keep going on, going down and down. Hey, uh, guys, you know we had the uh, Kirkland golf ball uh, phenomenon happened uh, right before Christmas there, and so you know when it seems uh, too good to be true, it it probably is. Well, Costco made a one-time deal to buy some cheap golf balls through a third party. The ball called, they, they call the ball Kirkland's signature. 
and they were selling them for twenty nine ninety nine for two dozen, so only about fifteen dollars a dozen. It quickly earned a reputation as a good performer from from golfers that used them, and because of the low pricing, it became an instant hit. It was so popular that Costco customers quickly grabbed them off their shelves. They sold out. Um, they they said early in December they would try to get some more on the shelves by December 20th, but those few dozen, uh, they were all sold out by 10 a.m. that day, I think, something like that. And so Costco, all this time, they went back out on the market to the original supplier to buy more of the golf balls, the supplier went back to the manufacturer, but the manufacturer said, uh, uh, no thanks, uh, can't sell you anymore. They were an overrun lot that they had sold. They dumped at a price to a liquidator. The liquidator swung the deal, sold them to Costco. Costco slapped your name on it, put them on the market on a cheap price. Well, it turns out this same manufacturer, uh, Nassau Golf, which is a Korean golf ball manufacturer, originally sold, did all this, sold this to the liquidator, but they also make balls for TaylorMade. And uh, TaylorMade was not too happy that the same ball that they're selling and getting uh, 35 and $40 a dozen for is being sold on a Costco shelf under another name for about a third of the price. So the manufacturer, Nassau Golf, refused to sell uh, more to the the liquidator or the, the third party that had sold them to Costco in the first place. So, you know, Costco did not count on the solid performance and the, they totally underestimated the overwhelming demand from the golfing public for these golf balls. And this is a perfect example of supply and demand. Uh, it's just it's a, a phenomenal example. I'm sure they'll be using it in economics classes for years to come. So, bottom line, it appears that Costco's foray into the golf ball market may have been short-lived, but it has made a huge impact. But uh, I'll bet there were some serious discussions going on between retailers like Shrixon, TaylorMade, and Callaway to make sure their suppliers don't dump overruns of their golf balls uh, to some become some knockoff brand for cheap retailers in the future. It, this is this is really quite a score, story to follow, guys. <laughs> oh my goodness, that, that that was like a piece of you know uh, gossip and uh, this uh, this story of uh, oh don't don't sell that to them, it, sell them to me. I, I think if Costco would have been a, a little bit more uh, ahead of that, they would have uh, tried to. You know, try to secure uh, some kind of a deal with these guys. But hey, who knows? That that's how things work behind it. So, Kieran, any comments on that before we close uh, our first argument? Uh, no, just that it was a very interesting story that I had absolutely no idea about. So it's fun to hear that from Fred. <laughs> <laughs> it was really <laughs> Incredible uh, stuff. This should be like in the New York Post or something like that. The Inquirer. Yes, exactly. Or something. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. Well, it was from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The the guy, some of the information came from the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it was, uh, you know, they did some uh, digging on this story. Well, they they did, and it was interesting, really interesting, really interesting. Uh, I mean, I I would have never expected something like that. It 
really weird that happened. But hey, that's how uh, you know deals and, and business works. With this, we'll wrap up our Par 5 News. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have our practice range where we have two things we want to talk about, two returns. One of them, the one that everybody's been waiting for, Tiger Woods officially returning to a PGA Tour event. Yeah, he returned to the Hero World Challenge. But no, that's, that's not a tour event. But he's returning this week at Torrey Pines where he began his career and also we're going to be talking about the LPGA returning, and after that, we'll have a, something, an interview with John Padani, the chief marketing officer on the VIG that's related to what the LPGA is doing, so don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Back Nine Report presented by eDraft.com. We'll be right back. Don't forget to check out our co-hosts on Twitter by clicking their names in the episode description. Now, back to the show. And we're back, and now it's time for the practice range for every week. Fran and I pick a topic, and each of us take our shots at it. We're going to add... Uh, Kieran this week, and we're going to start talking about Tiger Woods, whose 2017 season is about to kick into high gear. You know, Woods will play four times over the next five weeks as he tees it up at the Farmers Insurance Open beginning this Thursday. He also will be in Dubai the, the week after that, and then at the Genesis Open and Honda Classic in February. We're about to see a lot of Tiger Woods, uh, Kieran, so What's your take on the return of the big cat? Well, I think it's obviously great news for golf. You know, having Tiger back playing regularly is going to be a massive boost to the game, particularly right now when Rory McIlroy is going to be absent. You know, that's it's almost come at the right time. You know, Rory obviously was coming into this year having won the FedEx Cup. You know, he almost won in South Africa. He's going to be really perhaps trying to get back to world number one, get ready to win majors again this year. And now we've kind of lost him until March at the earliest. So Tiger's come in there and filled that void. Even though you have Jason Day and Jordan Spieth, you know, no one gets anyone near, anywhere close to Tiger in terms of attracting interest or you know, any, any viewership on TV or anything like that. So Tiger just drives the narrative in so many ways, and he still does, both positively and negatively. But what obviously we all hope is that after this four-week spell he's going to be playing is that we're going to be talking about that narrative as a positive thing and that we're talking about Tiger getting back to form, getting to a position where he could, he could potentially contend at Augusta when he get towards the Masters rather than having as essentially talking about the demise of Tiger if he was to miss the cut in all the events. So it'll be a fascinating few weeks. And um, I think for Tiger right now it's a case of more or less every week here he was looking for progression. You know, when he came back in December at the Hero World Challenge, he was there, he played all four days, he looked good physically, he seemed to enjoy himself, his, his demeanor was very positive, he was happy to be there. Obviously, there were flashes of brilliance, making, I think it's 25 birdies more than anyone else in the field. Obviously, a lot of errors in that game, particularly off the tee, but I guess you can kind of anticipate that given he's only had, had come back after more than a year off. Uh, so Tiger looked better. I think his swing looked better, rhythm-wise particularly. He wasn't lashing at the ball like he has done in the past, which put pressure on his body. He looked a bit leaner, obviously lost a bit of muscle mass. So he, I think he looked physically better as a golfer. And uh, I say he seemed to enjoy it. His putting was better. So he, he looked, you know, th- there was a lot of good stuff about the performance. But for me, the case was he made the four days. That was the main thing. But now this is a bit, a bit different because obviously at Torrey Pines, the venue where he has 
an incredible you know, relationship with going back to winning a junior world championship back in the day. It's kind of his home course in some ways, obviously winning that US Open you know, nine years ago now, unbelievably, which of course is arguably the most impressive achievement of his career, given he did it you know, on a broken leg, essentially. So it was um, it has a great history of this event, but obviously, again, that comes with pressure, his expectation there. For himself, more than anything else. Obviously, everyone else expects him to do okay, but obviously himself, it's more a case of he should be, he'll feel he should be playing that golf course well this week. Uh, but, but I say, I think for him, it's a case of if he can make the cut this week, that's a big step because obviously, you know, hero challenge. There was no cut there, only a small field, but there wasn't that immediate pressure. But when it's a cut after 36 holes, there's a pressure on you right from the start. And you know, if you got to a bad start, you're constantly playing catch up, trying to play all four rounds. So, if he was to make the cut, I think it would be a success from this week. Uh, then, of course, going into the events down the line in Dubai, Genesis, Honda. If he was to continually improve each week, I think that would be a massive sign, of a, a positive sign for him. Maybe a top 21 week, top 10 potentially. Anything that shows going into Augusta, he could potentially contend there would be a positive sign. And of course, also, the physical challenge of it, playing competitive golf over a month period where he hasn't really done that for a long time because his last two or three years, his career has been curtailed dramatically by injury, and he hasn't really had a consistent run of golf, uh, even practice-wise. But now he's had a lot of practice. He's talked about playing four or five times a week, so he's had that practice since playing the Hero Challenge almost two months ago now. So if he can play four or five weeks competitively, do the practice there on the range, to play hopefully four rounds each time, and he can do that successfully physically and also see an improvement in his game, then it would be a massive, you know, massive statement from Tiger that he could potentially win again at the highest level. I think there's anything's possible with Tiger, both good and bad. Uh, we can't really predict one way or the other. Who knows? We can just hope that he comes back and plays well because in the end, you know, what would be better for the game than seeing Tiger Woods at 41, you know, the biggest main golfer of all time, you know, arguably the best player of all time, certainly the best player of the last you know, 20, 30 years, someone who redefined the sport and really sport as a whole in many ways, coming back and competing against the likes of Rory, Jason Day, Spieth, guys who essentially grew up idolizing him. What a you know, narrative, what a story for golf that would be. And, um, but again, the thing is, if Tiger was to come here and he was to miss the cut, miss the cut in Dubai, and he was to struggle in Honda and Genesis, then it becomes a really negative thing. So there is a lot of pressure on him here. And uh, if he struggles, then suddenly the narrative mm-hmm. becomes Tiger's finished, that's it, he's over, he's done. And this is now essentially, this comeback now would really be seen as being a, a glorified farewell tour. So hopefully we don't see that. But um, whatever happens, he's playing this week with uh, Dustin Johnson and Jason Day the first two rounds. So that's going to be a real blockbuster grouping, that one. And uh, it's going to be fun to watch. And uh, I'll be tuning in to every shot, every shot I can to see how he plays, how he gets on. And hopefully we'll, we'll be seeing over, over all four rounds. And if he was to get into contention at any point, Carlos, over the next five weeks, you know, what a story that would be. So hopefully from that standpoint, we see it happen. And you can still see that he's the one that moves the needle because all the players are talking about it. All the shows are talking about him. Uh, he's still the biggest draw for it. So what's your take on his uh, return? Yeah, I really can't add much more on what, uh, what Kieran uh, just talked about. Uh, it is all about his stamina, will his back, will his physical health let him compete on the PGA Tour week in and week out? And, you know, playing four out of the next five weeks, traveling to the Middle East in between there, uh, I think this will be a really good test 
we should learn quite a bit over the next month of where Tiger's really at. Um, you know, Torrey uh, playing this week, he does know the golf course, but he had such a problem chipping the last time he tried to come back and play. Is his short game going to be up to the standard? Uh, is his nerves going to be there? Will he mentally be in it? Uh, you know, he, it really was uh, fun to see him play in the Hero World Challenge because he played pretty well in flashes. You could tell it was a little rusty because things got sideways on some different holes. Um, but he played pretty well, really, on the hole. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what's going on with him. And, I, you know, I'm not really looking for him to win. I'm, I'm like Kieran, if he makes cut some cuts, that's pretty good. And, uh, um, you know, but I think this will give us a good indication, and he will get a better indication after these first two or three or four weeks of what he needs to do and where he needs to go to get ready to play the majors later in the season, uh, maybe even the Masters. I don't. Can you can, can you imagine a scenario where he would be a factor in the Masters this year? Uh, that's hard for me. I know he could play that golf course, but it's still hard for me to imagine him being a factor this year. There's just too many things involved. But later in the summer, maybe for the PGA or the Open Championship, later in the summer. Um, maybe because now he'll be back in the groove of things. It'll be just another round. But that's my thoughts on it, Carlos. I think, uh, you know, he picked to me the perfect golf course to return for full because to me uh, that that he did in Bahamas in December, that was just like a pit stop. I mean, he has not played a real, real event in 522 days. So it's been like 17 months since he teed up at the 2015 Wyndham Championship uh, when he gets his first shot on Thursday. And to me, it's the best place for him. He has eight career wins at this course, including one at the U.S. Open. And of those 16 times that he has played there, eight wins, four of the eight non-wins were top five finishes. You know, he's a king in a handful of courses across the U.S., but maybe none more so than this one. I mean, he has earned $8.2 million at Torrey Pines alone. That would be num- number 196 on the all-time PGA Tour money list, only on Torrey Just Pines. Play. I mean, Just play he, he, he can play there. He knows this one. Last time he was here, of course, I, I, I wouldn't count that one. His glutes did not fire. Uh, you know, he was trying to play his first full season since his back to surgery there. I'm not kidding. I mean, it, you must remember from the exact quote from the event, it said that his gluteal muscles were deactivated. I mean, his butt did not fire. That's that's what it is. But he went on to finish top 20 at the Masters that year. So, uh, I, I expect him to compete this week. Maybe it's the fact, like I'm saying, that it's Torrey Pines. Maybe it was those 24 birdies that he made at the Hero World Challenge, which was more than anybody else. Maybe it's just the fact that he's Tiger freaking Woods. But I expect him to make the cut and at least be competitive on the weekend. Win? Nah, nah, no. I, but no golfer in the world is wiser than him at this course. That counts for something as long as his back holds. Uh, he's going to have a really good week to me, and his peers, like, I haven't seen him excited about him ever. I mean, you could have seen Adam Scott. I saw uh, uh, an interview with him. Sergio was shouting about him, saying it was a great thing. Ernie L. said, and I'm going to quote this from him. He said, uh, 
He's 41. He's seen what Phil, myself, and Darren Clark have done. We've won majors in our 40s. He's thinking if we can do it, he can definitely win a couple. I think he has a chance of doing that. He brings an immense spotlight to the game wherever he goes. He's obviously, he's obviously very, very good for the game. The better he plays, the better golf will be. End of quote. So he said long enough. Uh, it's time for, for us to see him play. So, Kieran, first, uh, if there's anything else you want to add before we move on to the LPGA preview. Oh, no, I think we covered Tiger pretty well there, but I would, I would say about Tiger and the Masters quickly. I think winning it would be a little bit of a stretch, but we think back to two years ago when Tiger went in there with his game struggling, his swing was poor, short game was an issue, and still after three rounds he was in the top ten. He was well back of, the, of space, but he was still in the top ten. And I think Tiger could do that again this year. And you know, that showed to me two years ago that he still had that will, that determination, where somehow he was able to find a way to score well on that golf course. And I think he's still capable of that. And if he swings better, if his short game's better, then he could get into a top five position quite possibly. Because in the end, you know, no one knows the golf course better than he does. And uh, his record there is obviously incredible. And, um, so, and again, it's a smaller field at Augusta. So you only have to beat essentially 70 guys, really, if you count out the past champions and the amateurs. So... You know, if, if, if there's one major Tiger could still win it, I think it is the Masters. And uh, maybe not this year, but I could see him finishing top ten. Fred, any final words before we move on to the LPGA? No, I think we covered Tiger. Let's let's watch him play. I'm ready to watch him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's about time. Hey, but it's also about time to start the 2017 LPGA season with 35 tournaments on the schedule, including the Solheim Cup. There's more prize money and more TV coverage. This season promises to be the biggest and the best ever, if that could ever be after last season. The season will open in the Ocean Golf uh, Club Golf Course in the Bahamas once again this year with the playing of the Pure Silk Bahamas LPGA Classic. Last year, this event uh, brought us a very exciting finish when Hyu Kim, Yu Kim shot a final round 66 to win by two strokes over Stacey Lewis, Se-Yong Kim, and Anna Nordqvist. And now with the Coats Golf Championship no longer on the schedule, it followed this tournament last year. And two weeks off following this tournament, it appears that many of the players from Asia and Europe have chosen to start their season in February Many will skip also the next stop in Australia and start their season in Thailand. Uh, players that are not teeing it up this week include Lydia Ko, Ingi Chan, Sung Hyun Park, Chung Chung Fung, Anna Nordqvist, Hana Yan, Harun Umura, Mingyi Lee, William Lee, and Suzanne Pedersen. But that does not mean that this tournament will be without any stars. The field will be led by world number two, Arya Yutanagarin, and will also include such stars as Lexi Thompson, who's number five, Se Young Kim, who's number six, Brooke Henderson, number eight, Amy Young, number 12, Stacey Lewis, number 14, and Charlie Hall, number 15. Fred, how about the start of the LPGA Tour season? Well, yeah, it's we're ready to get that going. You know, we've got the Champions Tour going, we've got the PGA Tour going, and we've got Collins played. So it's time to get the ladies out there. Um, Hu Yu Kim uh, captured third title last year. Uh, you talked about the numbers. Runner-up was Stacey Lewis, Anna Norquist, and Se-Young Kim. So Se-Young Kim has played this event twice. She won it in 2015, was runner-up last year. So she's got to be a favorite going in here. Uh, you mentioned she's in the field. Another runner-up from last year, Stacey Lewis. You know, she went through all of last year without a win. So you know she's going to be ready to get off to a fast start. So I look for her to have a good week. 
you know, but really, and then Brooke Henderson's in the field. You know, we always like her. Uh, you know, she, this could be a good place for her to get going. Uh, Lexi, you know, you, you mentioned those. But I don't think they really matter. Um, you know, Aria's Utana guys in the field. So the smart money's got to be on her five times. She won last year, won the million-dollar race this Emmy Globe. Um, you know, just, she just dominated. And, and if she's in the field and she's hitting that two iron, uh, 200 and, you know, 60 yards or whatever she hits that thing, um, she, she's going to be tough to beat probably. Uh, a couple of numbers uh, for this year, the, the LPJ, and we're going to talk more about it too in the interview, but um, you've got uh, 15 players surpassed a million in single season earnings last year. And you've got this year the tour is seeing increases in uh, more than a third of the scheduled events. So you've got um, uh, new events, four new events that are going to add the $6.8 million in total prize money. Uh, you've got uh, almost $70 million in, in, in total purse available for the year. Sixteen events will feature purses of $2 million or more, which is double the amount that they had back in 2011. Um, you know, you've got um, uh, the majors are going to add up to be $17.8 million. Uh, the ANA, ANA inspiration has increased from 2.6 to 2.7. The U.S. Women's Open has gone to $500,000 to $5 million. The Women's British has gone to 3.25. The Avion's up to 3.35. And then the uh, you've even they've even bumped the uh, group tour championship uh, up five hundred thousand dollars to two point five million. So uh, a lot more money on the LPGA tour this year, and they've got more events. So a lot more excitement with all these young women uh, that are competing. The fields are deeper, uh, and the purses are bigger. Should be a great year for the LPGA tour, guys. What you think, uh, Kieran, about this opener and the LPGA tour season? Yeah, I think the opening event will obviously help to kind of continue the legacy we saw from last year, and the players who are playing well will hope to continue that going into this season. The players who didn't have as much success last year will be trying to rectify that this week and go into the weeks ahead. But the LPGA Tour, I was reading earlier on, and this looking, it's comparing the the tour compared to when Michael Wan took over seven years ago compared to now. You know, in every single metric, the tour compared now compared to then is just incredibly stronger. You know, money wise, event wise arguably player-wise, it's just it's improved so much immeasurably beyond probably anybody's expectations seven years ago, and that's credit to Michael Wan and his team. And again, the players themselves, all these young players who have emerged from all across the world and have created a, a really fascinating international product. Um, and again, it's it's always fascinating to, to watch. And I think I would direct people to an article written in Golf Australia. You can get it online. It's also featured in Golf Digest from Jeff Ogilvie, the former U.S. Open champion. He spoke about watching women's golf, and he was a big fan of it. wasn't necessarily before, but he is now. And talking about the positive aspect of it, the quality of the players, how exciting it is, how diverse it is, and uh, how much he enjoys watching the women play. And it's an article worth seeking out, because it's certainly very true, and it's hard to argue with anything that he says there. 
But for me this season, the LPGA Tour, I'm looking at specific players, how they'll get on. Charlie Hull, obviously, who got her first LPGA Tour win at the end of last year. Can she carry on this year now, 20 years old, which you know is still incredibly young, but really for the LPGA, that's almost like prime of your career. Because, Carlos, you mentioned earlier, the average age of a winner last year, I think, was 23. So that's how young the, the Tour is compared to the, the men's Tour. You're incredibly much younger. And uh, so Charlie's now in that position where it's time for her career to kind of kick on and potentially get a first major win more regularly in the United States, which would be obviously a great thing for her. And then look at Lydia Cole, who, of course, has made tremendous changes to her whole setup, her team, her equipment. You know, how will that play out this year? Obviously, a player who's had an astonishing record over the last five, six years when she was an amateur winning events in Canada and uh, coming in as a professional winning majors, you know, just being world number one, just setting all kinds of records and benchmarks. You know, and she's kind of ever so slightly fallen off that pedestal. Can she get it back this year? Can she come back maybe even better than before? That will be fascinating to see. And even American golfers, you know, last year in the LPGA Tour, it was a great year, but Americans only accounted for two victories in the entire schedule. That was Brittany Lang and Lexi Thompson early in the year. So American golfers, young and older, this is a year for them to come back and show that they're still a force in the game uh, because they're being kind of swamped in their own circuit by all the international players. So that's going to be fascinating to see as well. But again, uh, the LPGA Tour is it's continuing to grow and enhance itself. I'm looking forward personally to the events in Scotland later this year at the, the Scottish Women's Open, which is now on the LPGA Tour at Dundonald, the same venue as the men are going to be playing this year. And then the Women's British Open uh, just on the road from me at King's Barnes, which I'll be t- attending this, uh, this this summer. So there's a lot of good things to look forward to in the LPGA Tour. As always, the quality of the players seems, seems to get deeper and better, and uh, it's always a fascinating product. And I think now people are starting to appreciate that a lot more. I think the viewing figures are increasing and uh, it's g- gaining greater attention across the world. And uh, that's only a good thing because these players are fantastic to watch. And I think they play a game that's more relatable in terms of the distance they hit the ball. And I think they play a game that's perhaps more reminiscent of the game that the men played 30, 40 years ago, where the game was more about more about precision than power. And I think that is more interesting to watch. Oh, that's you, you put it perfectly. I, that's the thing about the women. They play that strategy game that still it's not that overpowering. Uh, they might have one or two or three players that, like Adia Yutanara, can really overpower uh, a golf course, but there's still a lot of strategy involved and a lot of precision. And uh, for my part, uh, you guys have covered everything about this tournament, a lot of about uh, the LPGA Tour season. I'm just going to mention three players besides. Of course, there's Lydia Cole, Adia Yutanara, and like you mentioned, Charlie Hall. It's, it's the breakthrough year for her. Brooke Henderson, Lexi Thompson. Uh, of course, Simbi Park when she comes back, Stacey Lewis, the veterans. But there are three players that I really, really am going to be watching all year long. The first one is Song Young Park. I mean, well, this year may be his, her first full season on tour. She's no stranger to competing in golf's uh, biggest stage. Uh, she's a seven-time winner on the KLPGA last year. She made seven starts also on the LPGA Tour last season. She earned her way onto the LPGA Tour by way of the money list, having finished in the top 13 in six of those seven events. She also finished in the top three in two of the season's five majors. That girl can play. Selling Young Park, she's not young, but hey, she can play, and she proved that she has a great game. I'm going to be looking for her. One that, another one is Se Young Kim. She has made 
quite an impact in this her first two seasons on the LPGA Tour. I think that this is going to be a breakthrough year for her, winning three times in 2015 en route to earning the Louis Sox Rolex Rookie of the Year award. She notched two more wins last year and climbed to sixth on the Rolex rankings. She has finished in the top 11 in the half of the majors she's played since becoming a member, including a runner-up to Inby Park at the 2015 KPMG Women's PGA Championship. Seiyun Kim, I think this is her year to climb even further ahead and top on the Rolex World Rankings. And finally, one player that I think is about to burst also this year is Jerina Piller. You know, she tops this list to me. Uh, she's in the hunt for her first win still. Uh, she started in 2010, but she's still looking for her first win on tour. She has 31 career top 10s in her seven seasons on tour. Uh, she has been a two-time member of the Solheim Cops uh, Team USA. She worked uh, with the team's vice captain, Nancy Lopez, who has served as a mentor to her. And ever since, that encouragement has shown results for her, notching nine top 10s last year alone. Uh, she was four-time runner-up on tour and came heartbreakingly close to standing on the podium at the Olympic Games in Rio, where him, her emotions were on full display on that interview post the game when she followed that final round of three over par 74 to finish. I was crying with her there after she finished on that chair for 11. So I really am looking for those three uh, ladies, Sung Young Park, Se Young Kim, and Jerina Pillar, to do great things this year. So anyway, Fred, any final comments before we go to the VIG? No, I, I think we covered it. Um, just I'm ready to go. You know, let's 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 get going with the LPGA tour. I love watching them. Kieran, any final words on the LPGA? No, I, I second what Fred said there. I'm looking forward to seeing how it kicks off this week, and obviously going to follow it closely throughout the year. I'm looking for another great year for the LPGA tour and. Uh, Obviously, culminating with that Solheim Cup in the in the autumn, that should be a great event as well. So uh, it should be a marquee year for the LPGA. That's it. We're waiting for it. Can't wait for the start. It's going to be a great year for the LPGA. Now we're going to have our VIG very important guest of the week. His name is John Paulani. He's the uh, chief marketing official for the LPGA. And Fred, you had an interview with him. Can you set it up for us? Yeah, um, I got to meet uh, Mr. Pisani when they made the Solheim Cup announcement up in Inverness. He came up for that. And uh, so um, he promised he would come on the radio show. So I gave him a, when we were going to do this preview. Um, he has been he, he has been a friend of Michael Wands for a long time, uh, since college days. And uh, we talked about that briefly. Uh, but he has been the chief marketing officer and the business affairs guy. And so he's been there, and he came in in the, in the years when the, when the LPGA Tour was down and has been there since they've grown it back up. And uh, very interesting to talk to. Uh, he makes some good points in here. Uh, so uh, let's give it a listen, Carlos. Let's listen to it. We are happy to have John Padani here with us today on Back End Report. John has been uh, in the golf business for some time. But he currently is the chief marketing officer for the LPGA Tour and has been there for a few years now. John, thank you so much for talking to us, and welcome to the Back Nine Report. Hi, Fred. It's a pleasure, uh, pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, you've known Commissioner Wong for some time. How, how did you guys uh, – where did you first meet? 
Well, we uh, first met at Miami University, um, and actually even before classes started, we were both walk-on quarterbacks uh, on the football team, and so we met back in 1983 um, in a hot, sandy, dusty day as we were going into two-a-days at uh, Miami of Ohio, so we've known each other for over 30 years now. When you left Miami, you both went to Procter & Gamble for a while. You kind of split off. You ended up going to the PGA Tour for a while. What were you doing there? Started out in business development and uh, got recruited from, from P&G. Um, it wasn't really a time in my life where I was looking to make a change. My wife and I had just bought a house. We had just had a baby. And all of a sudden, you know, I get a call to potentially move to Florida. You know, I grew up playing golf. I grew up playing all sorts of sports. I had it in the back of my head that some somewhere down the road I would get into sports marketing and um, you know you don't always get to pick and choose the timing but it was kind of hard to not pursue an opportunity at the PGA Tour and so you got a, a unique background working at Pocket and Gamble and bringing that ex- that business experience over to the PGA Tour and then 2010 the LPGA decide to change and uh, let Carolyn Bivens go as their commissioner. They hired Michael Wan. Michael was there for a time, and he came calling looking for his old buddy to come help him uh, resurrect the LPGA Tour that was pretty much down and out. Yeah, they were, you know, and, and uh, kind of ironically, we were we were both candidates uh, for the job. I made it to the final selection part of the commissioner search, and um, he beat me out. When you joined the LPGA in 2010, uh, there were only 24 events that year, and the LPGA had slipped quite a bit. Now, this year, 2017, the schedule includes 35 events with over $74 million in total purses. 18 of the 35 events slated for this season are on U.S. soil, plus two in Canada, one in the Bahamas, and one in Mexico for a total of 22 on the North American continent. The LPGA has embraced being a global tour, and, and it has become a strength. The International Crown, the Solheim Cup have become major international sporting events that, that reach across lines. Even casual golf fans or not golf fans at all uh, embrace those events. As chief marketing and business officer for the LPGA, you have to be pretty happy with the success the tour has enjoyed over the past six years certainly are. Um, You know, we've got a great team. We've made a a lot of good progress. Um, You know, we knew that first and foremost, we had to focus on building back the schedule and getting more tournaments, Um, you know, not only for the opportunities for the players, but that that's the engine that drives the entire business. If we're playing a golf tournament, we're on TV, more people are going to our website, more people are following us on social media, it's creating more sponsor opportunities. So um, that really was um, job one, and that fueled everything else. Um, and it took, you know, it took a lot of rebuilding of trust with existing partners and, um, you know, getting people to have faith that the tour was going in the right direction um, and attracting new partners. And fortunately, we had some success doing that, and then momentum kind of builds on momentum, and people start to see that it's a property that's uh, doing well, got a lot of exciting things happening. Players have, have certainly played a big role in that as well. They they understand um, how important it is to deliver sponsor value, how important it is to be accessible to fans and so forth. And, and I think I think the LPGA has always been like that, but I think when you go through 
the difficult times um, that the tour did in 2009, 10, even the beginning part of 11, you appreciate what you have even more. You know, it's just like anything in life. When you face tough times, you you got to kind of revert back to the the basics and what's important. So I think that's given everybody associated with the tour a sense of appreciation and wanting to you know really get it back to where it should be. One of the things that people kept talking about last year. Uh, of course, there were only two American women, Brittany Lang and Lexi Thompson, won events on the LPGA Tour last season. But the LPGA embraces this. Do you see it as a problem or an asset that LPGA Tour is so strong globally that international players tend to dominate the winner's circle lately? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there there certainly are advantages. Obviously, we like to see, you know, American players do well, but it does ebb and flow a little bit. You know, last year, the, the American team won the UL International Crown, and it wasn't too long ago that Stacey Lewis was number one. Um, you know, so I think, you know, we'll see. I think that probably was a little a bit of an anomaly where there were only two uh, victories by American players. I would be surprised if it continues like that. But to your question, I absolutely think it's an advantage. Um, we have, you know, a very diverse tour. Um, you know, the perception is that it's totally dominated by uh, Korean players, um, and the Korean players certainly are one of the strongest countries, if not the strongest. But we have di- a big diversity among countries now. In fact, if you look at the latest Rolex rankings. We have 12 different countries represented in the top 21 in the world. There, there are a lot of a lot of different countries um, who have good young players, and um, you know that we've got tournaments in 15 different countries. Um, so the combination of players from all over the world and playing tournaments around the world, and of course our TV distribution, you know, really is a global tour, and I think that uh, is a big advantage. And even some of the international players take a Brooke Henderson from Canada. I think the the U.S. audience has really responded to her well. Lydia Ko been able to build good fan followings in the United States, and I guess probably the biggest evidence of that is. Last year in in 2016, our television ratings uh, for the overall season were up 10, 11 percent. You know, in a, in in the U.S. in a year where we had, uh, as you indicated, uh, kind of a dearth of of American winners. So, I think that shows that the fans watch the LPGA regardless if American players are winning. Let's talk about a little bit about the 2017 schedule. Um, one of the things is the co-sponsoring with the Ladies Scottish Open with the uh, Ladies European Tours. So the women get to spend a couple weeks in Scotland or in Europe. Uh, they'll be playing that, and then the uh, Rico Women's British Women's Open is the is the following week. Uh, the season's going to open to the Bahamas this year, and then head off to Australia, Thailand, and Singapore before they come back to the uh, United States uh, to begin the season here. Let's just talk about the schedule a little bit. What are you seeing? What are you happy about? What are some highlights of the 2017 schedule that you see? We're excited about the four new tournaments that uh, were that are on the schedule this year. Um, you referenced a couple of them. We've got the we've got an event in Indianapolis and an event in Green Bay, um, and then we've got uh, the event you mentioned in Scotland with Aberdeen Ladies Scottish Open, um, and then the McKaysen New Zealand Open as well. So we're going to New Zealand for the first time, and that'll be the first. Uh, PGA Tour or LPGA event in in the country of New Zealand, uh, which of course is Lydia 
Mexico's home country. So, um, you know, a lot to look forward to in terms of the uh, the new events um, in a couple, you know, a new country for us. Excited about that. It is a Solheim Cup year. Um, you know, I think the Solheim Cup years bring even more excitement. Um, you know, last time we played Solheim Cup in Germany, it was a dramatic finish with the U.S. team making a huge comeback to win. Uh, winning eight of the 12 matches on Sunday. So, um, you know, there's going to be, I think, a lot of hype going into that in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, the, we expect huge crowds there, and um, it's, I think that'll be the biggest Solheim Cup we've ever had. So uh, we've got that to look forward to. I think uh, especially you look at the summer uh, where we have 12 events in a row at uh, one time period and um you know with the majors and the Solheim Cup um, I think it you know it shapes up to be a very exciting year for us and then kind of throw on top of that the breadth of young players uh, on tour right now and the excitement that they created last year you just kind of look down the list and uh you know the number of 19 20 21 year olds in the top 20 in the world is amazing. You've got Lydia Ko at number one, Aria Jutanagar at number two, Inji Chun number three, Lexi at five, Brooke Henderson at number eight, Charlie Hall from the UK at 16, Minji Lee. I mean, it's, it uh, really is amazing how many good young players we have in the top 20 in the world, and that, I think, sets us up well not only this year but over the next five years. And recognizable names. I mean, people now are, are beginning to recognize the names that you mentioned. That's what I think is – so important for the LPGA Tour, uh, what you've been doing over the last five, six years, the messages getting out. But you still have to have the players play, and they still have to be likable, and the fans still have to rally behind them. And, and that's exactly what you've been happening has been happening for the LPGA Tour over the last few years. And one of the things that now allows you is more corporate sponsors come forward. You're able to add a couple events. You're able to increase purses. You're getting more sponsorships. And that, and like the USGA has boosted the U.S. Women's Open to the total purse of $5 million. That's, that's unheard of. So the purses are getting better. There's more opportunities for the ladies. They're all positive for the LPGA Tour right now. Yeah, no, we're excited about where we are, but not complacent. You know, we still uh, still think that there's a lot of room for growth, um, and uh, we've got, you know, a lot of exciting things on the horizon. Um, you know, one of those is our alliance with the PGA Tour um, and the opportunities that that's going to create. You, you may have seen, um, you know, last week uh, Jay Monahan talking about um, that we're working on together the Tournament of Champions at the beginning of the year, making that a, a joint event. Event, uh, with the LPGA winners joining the PGA Tour winners there. Uh, we're also talking to the team at the Shark Shootout and the PGA Tour about turning that into a, a mixed team event. Um, a lot of cr- cross-promotional opportunities. You know, we've got an alliance with Top Golf. I think the other thing is we've had more success and created, you know, momentum. We've looked to partner with other organizations, or they've come to us and wanted to partner together to to do more. So those kinds of partnerships we think can lift us even further because they have a bigger fan base than we do, and hopefully we can tap into that and get even more people interested in women's golf. So one more thing before I let you go, we. We're, we're hearing that uh, you know the PGA Tour is partnering with uh, Twitter to do some more uh, live streaming of their events uh, before the network coverage. We know that your contract with the uh, networks is coming up. Then uh, the PGA Tour, uh, their contracts are coming up also. And you're, between your alliance with the PGA Tour, you're looking at, at marketing agreements and television contracts. 
What is your stance? What are you guys looking at? What are you thinking about? Do you see the PGA Tour or maybe the LPGA Tour and the PGA Tour having their own network, uh, their own television uh, production companies? Uh, You know, is Twitter going to be a bigger player? Are you looking outside? What does the future hold for uh, broadcasting or live streaming of golf events to the American public? Yeah, you know, it's uh, obviously a little premature for me to to get into details. Um, our, our current agreement with the Golf Channel goes through 2019. Uh, Golf Channel has been a great partner of ours. Um, you know, we have been able to add uh, uh, several network opportunities where we only had one or two five years ago. Now we have six or seven, uh, which has given us a chance to broaden our exposure. Um, but you're right. We did, uh, you know, part of our alliance with PGA Tour is they're going to help represent us um, in the next round of our TV negotiations. Uh, we've obviously seen a lot of the things and are working uh, to better understand what they're doing in the digital space, in the streaming space. We're, we're really excited about what the, the potential future for us could be. But we've got to go through that process. They, you know, they've got their own discussions. We've got our own. They'll, um, you know, we'll learn some things from what they do. Uh, we're certainly looking at all the things they are, like the Twitter. They've got their PGA Tour Live product, which is what helps fuel Twitter. Um, and uh, you know, the, the the landscape is is obviously changing. Facebook Live and Twitter and you know, who who bids on rights, whether it's Apple, Google, and, you know, what those uh, types of companies, how they may enter the sports space over the years. So, you know, we'll see how all that shakes out. Like I said, it's not really time yet. Uh, we're not even into those discussions yet, but uh, we certainly are optimistic about what the future holds. We've been talking with John Padani, who is with the LPGA Tour, And, John, again, we want to thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us, and we hope you'll come back and talk with us again down the road. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you uh, for your interest in in talking with us. There you have it. That was John Pagani, Chief Marketing Officer for the LPGA Tour, and he was talking about the upcoming season of the PGA Tour and all the things that they're doing. And, uh, Hopefully we can have him again uh, soon to talk a little bit more. But now we have to move on and do our final thoughts. And I'm going to start right away talking about the Augusta National Golf Club reportedly continuing its expansion to the west of Old Beck Grants Roads with the club paying $6.9 million for the Pet Boys property across the street. Several local news stations, including ABC News 6, cited the property records showing that the sale occurred in November. That sale of uh, $5.3 million reportedly spent to purchase uh, J Music Center last fall. It was topped by this uh, by this buying because it was incredible that it was only $637,000 in real estate records. So uh, now there are only three businesses remaining in Old Beckman's Roads. Uh, between Old Beckman's Roads and the new Beckman's Roads south of Washington Road that have not been purchased by the club. Those are an Olive Garden, uh, Wendy's, and a Walgreens, which sounds interesting. I'll be waiting to see if any of those big three budge and sell their property. If they do, then it's do what they say. When money talks, people listen, but we'll see what happens there. Uh, another piece of news, the winner of the 2017 Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship will take third place in golf's most international major championship when they receive an exemption into the 147th Open at Carnoustie, 
the winner will become the first champion in the history uh, of that tournament to receive the exemption to play in the Open in 2018. Uh, the region's flagship amateur championship also offers the winner an invitation to the Masters tournament. So given the rise of talent and development of the players from the Asia Pacific region, this represents a fantastic opportunity for talented amateur golfers from this part of the world to qualify for the Open and help in their further development as they aim to earn a spot in one of the most prestigious tournaments in the world. And last but not least, it has been reported that one week after the UPGA Tour Commissioner uh, Jay Monahan expressed openness to legalize betting for tournaments, the fantasy golf space received a shot in the arm. FanDuel, the daily fantasy sports site ready to merge with former, former competitor DraftKings, has decided to add golf to a list of sports it will offer this according to a Yahoo Finance report, but there are some complexities in the legality of this uh, for its implementation. I mean, we would need like a whole segment to dwell on this, but FanDuel is confident that they will be able to include it and be successful and legal in doing so. Uh, they proclaim that it helps drive viewership in golf. Although, Kieran, there is no hard evidence to suggest that daily fantasy golf games have earned viewership, but the popularity of these games have coincided with an increase in the number of millennials watching golf. So Golf Channel and NBC reported record-setting ratings for live broadcast last year. So who knows where that is going to be ending up again. Indeed, and I can assure you one person who will be very happy about that news, any opportunity to bet on golf is Phil Mickelson. He'll be, he'll be loving it. He'll be all over the fan jewel and he'll be putting all his names and he'll put himself in probably. Here's the thing. You know, last week, Phil Mickelson actually met, you know, said oh, oh, he, he, may, he, may, he wasn't sure whether he was going to play or not in the, the career challenge. But for me, I think he just said that to try and increase his odds of winning so he could put, put more money on himself. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if he did that because yeah. Phil loves a bet. And, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. It's a free country uh, for now at least. But, yes, moving on to um, uh, my half of the final putts of the day. Hopefully I won't free putt here. Uh, and indeed, firstly, uh, this kind of continues something we talked about earlier on, actually. And uh, but when non, but when not, when when they, when they don't share Instagram photographs of half-naked women, Golf Digest do occasionally produce some interesting content, and they have done so by calculating the average distance that regular golfers hit the ball through their bags. And uh, so that's fascinating. And apparently, at its core, then the median driving distance uh, of the average player is 219 yards. And other clubs include the median free wood goes 186 yards, seven irons go 133 yards, and a pitching wedge a mere 74 yards. And for what it's worth, golfers find the fairway 46% of the time. Uh, so I feel quite validated now in that I am distinctly average. <laughs> I haven't crap about that. But, um, so what seems obvious uh, from this is that, that most amateur players don't hit the ball probably as far as they think they do, uh, we hear all the time guys saying, oh, well, I hit the ball 250. It's like, no, 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 you can't. And you'll see why that's probably why most players tend to leave the ball short of the greens. They just don't hit the ball far enough, and they, un they kind of underestimate their, or they overestimate their own ability. And, um, and also, the incredible gains made in distance within the professional game that we talked about earlier, those haven't been translated down to the regular man. And that would also fall into the fact that handicaps, as far as I'm aware, haven't changed in any meaningful manner for decades. Uh, so the, 
regular players still play to roughly the same standard as they always have. It's just that the top players in the game, the guys with the best techniques, hit the ball so much further. And uh, ultimately, it just shows you that in the end, technology improves mostly those guys and women with, with the best techniques. And it doesn't do that much for those without that same ability. So, but we probably knew that anyway. Um, so rather than worrying about the latest clubs promoted this week at the PGA show, perhaps most of us should probably consider getting some lessons instead that may improve our game more than the latest Callaway driver. Uh, but uh, that's just my opinion. And also another event which is uh, coming to home of golf here in Scotland is the inaugural World Masters Golf Championship. This is for amateur golfers over the age of 50, and they can take this opportunity to come and play an event over a few days in Scotland. And it will be played later this year in September. Uh, events open to all players of, uh, who have a handicap, and they're over 50 years of age. And they can play on a number of great courses in Scotland, including Royal Troon, that hosted the Open Championship last year, the historic press group that hosted the early Open Championships back in the 19th century, and Dundonald, which will host uh, the Scottish Open and the Women's Scottish Open uh, this summer. And they're all in the west of Scotland in Ayrshire. So that's going to be an event later this year, and it should be a fun opportunity for those guys to get involved. So, And actually, it's perfectly within the range of Fred, because Fred is approaching the age of 50, but unfortunately, yeah. it's in the wrong direction. So uh, yeah, you can still try and enter it. So, so those, exactly. are, those are my final putts, Carlos. <laughs> Fred, you're turning 50, so don't worry. You're, you're fine. You're fine. Don't worry about it. I wish I could turn hey, Fred, 50 Fred, any, any final putts that you would like to add before we close the show? Yeah, just to mention that the uh, government of China is at it again. Uh, they've ordered uh, the closure of 111 golf courses uh, in China. So, uh, you know, golf is a kind of on-again, off-again thing in China. They, they've got such a water problem over there. Uh, and these, a lot of these courses were built without the official seal of the uh, top government in China. So they're just, they're just shutting them down. So hopefully they can get some of that straightened out and get some of them back up. If you want something done in China, you just have to go to Shen Jinping, and if he takes over, that that will be good. So anyway, Back Niners, that wraps up another week of the Back Nine Report presented by eDraft.com. Thank you for listening. It's always our pleasure to bring you the latest on the world of golf. Special thanks first to you, Kieran, for being with us as usual, masterful with your knowledge and on-point comments. Thank you for being with us. <laughs> Also, Thank for VIG, very important guest of the week, John Podani, the LPGA Chief Marketing Officer. Don't forget to join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time or here on Block Talk Radio. Or if you miss it, check it out on iTunes or tune in. And if you haven't done so, hey, go ahead, follow the show on Twitter. Our ID is at Back9Report. The number nine is in the middle. My name is Carlos Torres, along with Kieran Clark and Fred Alvader. We all wish you to be happy, be blessed, and enjoy the great game of golf and life. Happy golfing, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night.